Hello, my rebels. Today, I'll do my best to try to understand what's going on in Ukraine. I don't think I have anything particularly novel to say about it, but I want to point out how it was Joe Biden's weakness that caused Putin to move after Putin and basically all the bad guys being frozen for four years during Trump's administration. And I want to point out the Canadian connection that Joe Biden, by banning the Keystone XL pipeline, has made himself vulnerable to energy politics from Russia. I'll go through some of that and some of his more ridiculous statements. That's ahead. But first, let me invite you to subscribe to Rebel News Plus. That's the video version of the show. Just go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get the video version of this show plus four other shows a week. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, Russia invades Ukraine. It's February 24th, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. Russia has invaded Ukraine, not just a minor incursion, as Joe Biden said. So I think what you're going to see is that Russia will be held accountable if it invades. And it depends on what it does. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and then we end up having a fight about what to do and not do, etc. I think that Vladimir Putin took Biden's measure and realized that minor incursion, major incursion... Same diff, Biden and the West would do nothing. It would be like America fleeing Afghanistan after 20 years, abandoning billions of dollars worth of weapons, leaving behind hundreds of U.S. citizens. Just a total collapse, a collapse of will more than anything. That's what would happen again. Putin invaded eastern Ukraine in 2014. The Crimea, they annexed it. That was when Barack Obama was president and Joe Biden was vice president. Nothing really happened to Russia as a consequence. The world was learning. It could do what it wanted with the Democrats in charge until Donald Trump was elected in 2016. <clears throat> he was a tough guy. The media called him a bully. And it's true that some of his tweets were really mean. But there wasn't a war during his four years as president, was there? Trump liked being regarded as a bit of a wild card when he had Chinese uh, leader, the dictator Xi Jinping, over for dinner at Mar-a-Lago, his Florida hacienda. He timed a missile attack on Syria for dessert, just to show Xi Jinping how casual and cavalier Trump was about launching a bunch of cruised missiles. Whether it was respect or whether it was fear, the world did not trifle with Donald Trump. In fact, peace broke out, certainly between Israel and many of its Muslim and Arab neighbors, including the United Arab Emirates, where Dubai is, other Gulf states, and even in North Africa. They called it the Abraham Accords. Iran didn't try anything when Trump was in power. North Korea didn't try anything. There's Trump doing his best with a carrot and a stick. I mean, this is pretty tough talk, pretty directly to Kim Jong-un, and it seemed to work, didn't it? I'm not here to say that Trump solved all the world's problems, but they were certainly put on ice during his four years as president. Here he is talking about how Europe was too chummy with Russia, and it was foolish to buy their natural gas from Russia. Not only did it enrich Russia, but it gave Russia a kind of strategic veto over European political and military affairs, why would you buy their your energy from your enemy? Well, I have to say, I think uh, it's very sad when Germany makes a massive oil and gas deal with Russia, where you're supposed to be guarding against Russia, and Germany goes out and pays billions and billions of dollars a year to Russia. So we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting all of these countries. And then numerous of the countries go out and make a pipeline deal with Russia where they're paying billions of dollars into the coffers of Russia. 
So we're supposed to protect you against Russia, but they're paying billions of dollars to Russia. And I think that's very inappropriate. And the former chancellor of Germany is the head of the pipeline company that's supplying the gas. Uh, ultimately, Germany will have almost 70% of their country controlled by Russia with natural gas. So you tell me, is that appropriate? I mean, we've, I've been complaining about this from the time I got in. It should have never been allowed to have happened. But Germany is totally controlled by Russia because they were getting from 60 to 70 percent of their energy from Russia and a new pipeline. And you tell me if that's appropriate, because I think it's not. And I think it's a very bad thing for NATO, and I don't think it should have happened. And I think we have to talk to Germany about it. On top of that, Germany is just paying a little bit over 1 percent, whereas the United States, in actual numbers, is paying 4.2 percent of a much larger GDP. So I think that's inappropriate also. You know, we're protecting Germany, we're protecting France, we're protecting everybody, and yet we're paying a lot of money to protect. Now, this has been going on for decades. This has been brought up by other presidents, but other presidents never did anything about it because I don't think they understood it or they just didn't want to get involved. But I have to bring it up because I think it's very unfair to our country, it's very unfair to our taxpayer. And I think that these countries have to step it up, not over a 10-year period. They have to step it up immediately. Germany is a rich country. They talk about they're going to increase it a tiny bit by 2030. Well, they could increase it immediately tomorrow and have no problem. I don't think it's fair to the United States. So we're going to have to do something because we're not going to put up with it. We can't put up with it. Was that undiplomatic talk? Sure, I guess. But he did get NATO allies to spend more on the military. It was honest. I mean, compared to this. I'll lead an effective strategy to mobilize true and international effort to pressure. How ironic the media party that had claimed Trump was in Putin's pocket. Well, Putin never tried anything like this during Trump's tenure, did he? So Biden was weak, but once perhaps he was strong, I don't know, decades ago. At least we can say he had his mental faculties whether or not his judgment or leadership was sound, at least he was once something. I'm not sure you can say that about Kamala Harris, who was dispatched to Europe to handle this tough job. Imagine the terror that struck in the hearts of Ukraine, I mean. <laughs> Look at this clip. She starts with, listen, guys. I mean, listen, guys. We're talking about the potential for war in Europe. I mean, let's really take a moment to understand the significance of what we're talking about. It's been over 70 years. And through those 70 years, as I mentioned yesterday, there has been peace and security. We are talking about the real possibility of war in Europe. So our position is for us very clear, which is as a leader, which we have been bringing together the allies, working together around our collective and unified position that we would all not just prefer we desire we believe it is in the best interest of all that there is a diplomatic end to this moment the mask the listen guys the total lack of any coherent point just talking out the clock what does she mean what, what does she stand for i i don't know how woke America is? Did we mention that she's the first African-American and Indo-American and female vice president? Did we mention that? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why they didn't work on Putin. I'm not making fun of the fact that she's a woman. I'm making fun of the fact that she is hollow. Margaret Thatcher wasn't hollow. Golda Meir wasn't hollow. They were leaders. Here's a hollow man. This is John Kerry former Secretary of State, now has special projects for Biden. In fact, he was the Secretary of State in 2014. That's their top diplomatic post when Putin invaded uh, Crimea last time. Here's what John Kerry had to say literally yesterday. I'm very concerned about, I'm concerned about Ukraine because of the people of Ukraine and because of the principles that are at risk uh, in terms of international law and trying to change boundaries of international law by force. Uh, I thought we lived in a world that had said no to that kind of activity. 
and I hope diplomacy will win. But massive uh, emissions consequences to the war, but equally importantly, you're going to lose people's focus. You're going to lose certainly big country attention because they will be diverted and, and uh, I think it could have a damaging impact. So, you know, I think hopefully President Putin would realize that in the northern part of his country, they used to live on 66% of a nation that was over frozen land. Now it's thawing and his infrastructure is at risk and the people of Russia are at risk. And so I hope President Putin will help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. Come on, guys. Climate is the most important thing. Vladimir Putin, can we get you on board for that? The weakness being projected. The attack from Russia today and last night was striking. It was startling. It wasn't messing around. It looked like a full-scale war. The combined might of Russia being deployed en masse, sharply, quickly, a real blitzkrieg. There was a decade or so after the fall of the Soviet Union when the West rightfully could chuckle at how rusty and out of date the Russian military machine was. The country was broke. Their stuff just fell apart. I'm not sure if that's true anymore. Their jets, their helicopters, their missiles, their electronic warfare, warfare it's, it's very serious in all regards. New missiles, cyber warfare. I think that America's military is still more modern and more large, but not vastly more so. And of course, so much comes down to will, to courage, to leadership, to charisma, to purpose. That's what happened in Afghanistan. Here's the top military man in America called the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley. Um, take a look at him. I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand uh, and I, I want to understand white rage, and I'm white, and I want to understand it. So what is it that caused thousands of people to assault this building and try to overturn the Constitution of the United States of America? What caused that? I want to find that out. I want to maintain an open mind here, and I do want to analyze it. It's important that we understand that because our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Guardians, they come from the American people. So it is important that the leaders now and in the future do understand it. I've read Mao Zedong, I've read, I've read Karl Marx, I've read Lenin, that doesn't make me a communist. So what is wrong with understanding, having some situational understanding about the country for which we are here to defend? And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. That was started at Harvard Law School years ago, and it proposed that there were laws in the United States, antebellum laws prior to the Civil War, that led to uh, a power differential with African Americans that were three-quarters of a human being when this country was formed. And then we had a civil war and emancipation proclamation to change it. And we brought it up to the Civil Rights Act in 1964. It took another 100 years to change that. So look it, I do want to know. And I respect your service and you and I are both Green Berets, but I want to know. And it matters to our military and the discipline and cohesion of this military. Yeah, critical race theory, white privilege. You've got, you've got them on the run now, boss. Um, and while you're indoctrinating them in wokeness, why not fire any soldier who doesn't want to get vaxxed, even if they already have natural immunity? Imagine what that would do to morale and to recruitment. Real question, do you think that America's military today would beat Russia in a hot war? Do you think it would? How about China's military? You know, last night when Russia was invading, Donald Trump made a public statement. Not from the White House, of course. He's not president anymore. He just made a public statement directly to the media. But not Joe Biden. Joe Biden didn't call a press conference. He was asleep. He didn't make an announcement this morning either. He waited until mid-afternoon. Ukraine had largely fallen by then. We've been transparent with the world. We've shared declassified evidence about Russia's plans and cyber attacks and false pretexts so that there could be no confusion or cover-up about what Putin was doing. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. Today, I'm authorizing additional strong sanctions 
and new limitations on what can be exported to Russia. This is going to impose severe cost on the Russian economy, both immediately and over time. We have purposefully designed these sanctions to maximize the long-term impact on Russia and to minimize the impact on the United States and our allies. The world's leaders were largely unified in their rejection of Putin's invasion. Of course they were. Biden was sleeping. So Boris Johnson spoke for both of them. For our part today, the UK is announcing the largest and most severe package of economic sanctions that Russia has ever seen. With new financial measures, we're taking new powers to target Russian finance, in addition to the banks we've already sanctioned this week. Today, in concert with the United States, we are imposing a full asset freeze on VTB. More broadly, these powers will enable us totally to exclude Russian banks from the UK financial system, which is, of course, by far the largest in Europe, stopping them from accessing sterling and clearing payments through the UK. And with around half of Russia's trade currently in US dollars and sterling, I'm pleased to tell the House that the United States is taking similar measures. These powers will also enable us to ban Russian state and private companies from raising funds in the UK, banning dealing with their securities and making loans to them. We will limit the amount of money that Russian nationals will be able to deposit in their UK bank accounts. And sanctions will also be applied to Belarus for its role in the assault on Ukraine. Overall, we'll, we'll be imposing asset freezes on more than 100 new entities and individuals, on top of the hundreds that we've already announced. This includes all the major manufacturers that support Putin's war machine. Furthermore, we are also banning Aeroflot from the UK. Next, on top of these financial measures and in full concert with the United States and the EU, we will introduce new trade restrictions and stringent export controls similar to those that they in the US are implementing. We will bring forward new legislation to ban the export of all dual-use items to Russia, including a range of high-end and critical technological equipment and components in sectors including electronics, telecommunications and aerospace. Legislation to implement this will be laid early next week. These trade sanctions will constrain Russia's military, industrial and technological capabilities for years to come. That sounds serious. America apparently wanted to go further and ban Russia from the international money clearing system called, called the SWIFT system. But Germany vetoed that. They like Russia too much. Here's Biden basically shrugging his shoulders, saying he doesn't actually think sanctions will stop Vladimir Putin from doing anything. Number two, no one expected the sanctions to prevent anything from happening. It has to show this is going to take time and we have to show resolve so he knows what's coming. And so the people of Russia know what he's brought on them. I don't know how to beat Putin. I think showing weakness is how not to beat him. And that's pure Biden and Trudeau, for that matter. It's a bit weird to hear Trudeau talk about authoritarian regimes after putting Canada under martial law because of some hunking. But here's what I know. Energy and money call a lot of shots. So sanctions could work on Russia unless, say, China is there to provide whatever economic access America has closed the door to Russia on. Energy is very important, which is why Trump was opposed to the Nord Stream pipeline that would sell gas from Russia to Europe. <clears throat> Biden approved of that pipeline that Trump had stalled. Biden also canceled the Keystone XL pipeline being, bringing oil down from Canada to America. Here's a tweet from Bloomberg. I thought this was interesting. In the 24 hours after Putin recognized two breakaway Ukrainian republics, the U.S. and its allies bought $700 million in Russian oil, gas, and commodities. Absolutely, and Canada bought some of that too. You know, Trudeau blocked Energy East, so Canada buys Russian oil for the largest refinery in Canada, which is in St. John, New Brunswick. Biden blocked Keystone XL, so America buys Russian oil too. Do, do you want to 
sanction Russian oil? Do you want to cut them off? Help yourself, though. As Biden and Jen Psaki keep saying, the price for that will be borne by Americans in higher oil prices. But even without all this going on, gas in California is almost $5 a gallon. Should people across the country expect to see that kind of a number when they go to gas up their car? $5, $6? Well, again, I think as you heard the president say last week, uh, standing up for our values is not without cost. What we're trying to do is minimize that cost. So I don't have a prediction of it right now because we're trying to minimize the impact on the global energy markets. So Biden says the sanctions won't stop Putin. But Biden and Saki say that the sanctions will cause pain in America with higher gas prices. I think I heard that right. And of course, higher gas prices are great for Russia because so much of their economy is based on oil and gas. But why is it this way? Well, it's because in part we made Greta Thunberg our energy policymaker, that Swedish teenager. We shut down our pipelines. We shut down our nukes. She was a child, but grown-ups listened to her. Well, Putin didn't, but uh, the West can enjoy that now. This is a bad day for Ukrainians, but do you think it's going to stop here? I think Putin will be fine economically. I think he's in league with China. I think he controls Europe more than they control him. I think the sanctions will hurt the West more than they help him. I think high oil prices are exactly what he wants. I'm worried about Ukraine, but really I'm thinking about what comes next. Afghanistan was first. Ukraine is next. I'd be worried about Taiwan. And what more damage can be done until Joe Biden is thrown out in three years? Stay with us for a moment. Well, as you know, over the course of our seven years, our reporters have been attacked several times. I remember when our friend Sheila Gunn-Reed was literally assaulted at the Women's March by a new Democrat activist who wasn't a woman. This was in January of 2017. And uh, actually, every year, a reporter of ours gets hit or attacked or spat on or shoved, usually by some Antifa leftists. And as you know... One of the things we do is we hire security guards for our people to protect against the rabid left. But what do you do when it's the government you need protection from? In that case, security guards don't work. A security guard will never take up arms or put his hands up to fight against a police officer. The police are the law. And if a security guard tries to stop a cop, well, he'll be arrested himself. And so it is that when we deployed our reporters to the trucker rebellion in Ottawa, we didn't have security because the threat was not from the peaceful truckers. The threat was from the police. And our reporter, Guillaume Roy, was pepper sprayed. Here's a picture of him having taken a face full of pepper spray from police. Guillaume is not a protester. He was obviously doing nothing violent of any sort. He's literally our cameraman. They pepper sprayed him because they knew he was with Rebel News. But of course, the worst thing that has ever happened to Rebel News in our seven years was the brutal and violent attack on our Quebec reporter, Alexa Lavoie, who was beaten with clubs by, by police and then shot at point blank range with a gun that used to fire tear gas canisters, shot in the leg. Here's some video of that attack. Oh, 
While this was terrifying, we all saw it in real time since we were live streaming. I spoke to Alexa within half an hour of it happening. She was in terrible pain, and I had seen a photograph of where the tear gas canister was shot at her leg. I should tell you, she was so brave, she insisted on continuing to report from the front lines. Only later that night did she go to the hospital. Joining us now via Skype is Alexa Lavoie. Alexa, nice to see you again. I'm so sorry for what happened to you on the weekend. And I know that you suffered for your journalism, which you did for all of us. You were there showing the world what was happening. And for that, you were targeted. And I'm sorry that that happened to you. But it was almost predictable because uh, many times before that happened, I was hit uh, a couple of times, pushing the ground. I was continuing to report uh, on the front line because I wanted to show the world how the police was acting on the peaceful protester that day. And I think it's important because who else will show what is going on? Yeah. Most of the mainstream or state media have said that protester was violent, using gas against um, police. I was like, the gas is not coming from the, the protester. That's coming from the other side, the police. Same if the Ottawa police have said that they were not using chemical products against the protester. We had that day the proof that is not true. Yeah, it's outrageous. The Ottawa police account was a disinformation uh, account on Twitter. It was pumping out the exact opposite of what happened, of what was happening. Uh, even when that uh, police riot horse charged into the crowd and stomped on an elderly lady who had a mobility scooter, the Ottawa police Twitter account actually said that, no, no, that was someone attacking the horse with a bicycle. Like just pure fabrication. If it weren't for you and other rebel reporters, and there were a handful of other in, uh, independent journalists on the ground, we would never have known what was happened. What happened? Now, I, I spoke with you that day and you were in great pain, but you chose to continue reporting, which I thought was amazing. You did later that night go to the hospital. Am I right? Yes. So I went to the hospital just for having a medical record, but as well to see if uh, if other problems will uh, go on afterwards, I want to be sure that I have the record that is coming from that shot that I received on my left legs. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you went there, and, and I hope you've been taking some medicine for the pain, if it's still painful. Um, I want to tell you, and I think you know this, that we have asked our two general counsel lawyers to file two legal actions on your behalf. The first one, a lawsuit against the police for attacking you, for shooting you with a what could have been a deadly weapon, for hitting you with sticks. So we're going to sue the police for their misconduct and their abuse. But we're also going to file a legal complaint with something called the SIU, which stands for the Special Investigations Unit, if I'm not mistaken. That's the Ontario Commission that looks into police violence. They're a full-time commission that looks into police violence. So we're going to sue the police but we're also going to have the police oversight committee look into it. And, and uh, we are providing two lawyers for that because we believe it's very important. I don't know how either of those things are going to go, but I want to let you know we're doing that. And I think you've been in touch with the lawyers already. Yes, uh, I am in touch already with lawyers. And I was a little bit in shock when David Menzi asked the police why I've been shot that day. And when they said that they were not aware of this accident, but at the end, he took the time to say that he's sorry and is with the state media who have been yelling name against them and nothing about me and saying like, we are so sorry for you that you have been injured physically. I was like, that is actually the most rude thing in my face happening. Well, let me play a clip of that. This is David Menzies at the police press conference. Just an absolutely stunning answer. Either he was lying, which I think is the case, or if he does not know that his officer shot someone and beat someone, if he did not know that, either way, he should be fired. But here's David Menzies asking that question. Good afternoon, Chief. Uh, David Menzies with Rebel News. Um, Chief, can you kindly explain 
how it was that my colleague to my right here, Alexa Lavoie, was shot point blank with a tear gas canister doing some very painful damage to her. What was the reason for that, given that she was simply practicing journalism in the public square? Uh, so I'm unfamiliar with the incident you're speaking of. What I can tell you is that there is complaint mechanisms, there is review mechanisms that will be engaged following this for any use of force uh, incident that occurred. I'll also say that it's been my uh, observations and experience through the amazing extensive journalism coverage that's occurred through this, that the vast majority of our members have been extremely professional. They have ex executed an extremely methodical plan that has been focused on the safety of uh, the residents, the safety of our officers, and the safety of the people engaged in the protest. You're right. It was super gross. It was gross that he is investigating truckers who were merely verbally heckling reporters. That gets the police's attention. But when a police officer shoots you at point blank range and tear gas canisters are not meant to be shot at people. They're meant to be shot and then the gas emits from them. And I think that's uh, that was unacceptable anyways. I don't think there was any need for tear grass. There was no riot. It was just peaceful protesters. But to misuse and deliberately abuse uh, a tear gas canister and shoot it at someone like it is a weapon to deliberately hurt them, I think that that is actually a crime that was committed against you. And we'll see what the SIU and the courts have to say. I find this unacceptable. I think this is the worst thing ever to happen to ever, uh, any rebel journalist. And Alexa, I'm so sorry it was done to you, but I know why it was done to you. Because you have been the most energetic reporter covering the trucker rebellion. I think you've been in Ottawa for almost a month now. Yes. And they know you. And I think that's why they targeted you. They clearly targeted you. But I show just the truth of what is happening. Nothing has been violent on the ground. And it's always been peaceful. And now they just try to show the opposite of the rest of the world, that this movement was a, a violent, misogynist and racist movement. And that we should be uh, scared and uh, protect like the rest of the citizen when it's actually not true. Right now on the ground, with all the police state that is, is, is right now, I feel more in danger for my life than when the truck convoy was there. Hmm. Well, you also tracked down the elderly lady who was stomped on by horses here. I'd like to throw to a clip of that. Um, of, of course, our viewers can find the whole video elsewhere on our site. Here's a little uh, clip of you talking to that lady who was stomped on. After they trampled me, uh, there was a officer that I think a couple of them kicked me. Uh, I got a big bruise on the back of my thigh. Oh. And another one dragged me by my coat off the premises. But I walked right on by enemy lines and walked back into safety because outside of our circle, it didn't feel safe. When I was back in with the convoy, I felt safe. So when that happened and you were in the ground, no officer showed you some help or anything? No, they were all showing me anger and aggression. So nobody helped you? Well, he aggressively helped me out of the area and was told to leave and don't come back or if I come back, I would be arrested. The ambulance came, took me to the hospital and there was only one doctor on. They sent me in for an x-ray. It wasn't a very good stay at the hospital, but it wasn't their fault either because there's no doctors or nurses to fill these hospitals to help people that are hurt. I am bruising on the back of my leg. I got a fractured collarbone. I got bruising on my, or I got sore ribs. Doesn't look like I'll be driving anytime soon. 
I'm still alive. I'm still here. Thank you to everyone out there. I'm okay. Bumped and bruised and sore, but I live to stand another day. Incredibly, the police said that she attacked the horses. It's just, it's just absurd. They're accusing their victims of what they themselves are perpetrating. I think some of this, Alexa, goes back to that moment last fall when you got into the leader's debate because the federal court ordered you in. Trudeau had banned you and the rest of the Rebel News journalists, but you got in there and you asked a question of Trudeau that was an excellent question. I think it was the best question of the election campaign. And just looking at his face, you could see Trudeau hated the fact that you were there, hated the fact you were talking to him. How dare you? <laughs> hated the fact that you asked a particular question. And it's almost as if you could see in his eyes, he was saying, I'll get even. Here, take a look at this. This was from last fall's election debate. Bonjour, Monsieur Trudeau, Alexandre pour Rebel News. Donc, Monsieur Trudeau, je vais revenir rapidement sur ce qui s'est passé hier. Vous avez dé diabolisé l'un des rares médias qui ne reçoit pas d'argent du gouvernement. Vous avez exprimé votre opinion en disant que nous propageons la désinformation. Si c'était vrai et si c'était le cas, la Cour, suprême, la Cour fédérale ne nous aurait pas permis d'être ici aujourd'hui. Je suis moi-même scientifique et je me base sur les faits. Ma question est la suivante. L'Israël est l'un des pays les plus vaccinés au monde. Ils sont rendus maintenant à leur quatrième rappel de vaccin. Ils ne considèrent plus que ceux qui ont reçu deux doses de vaccin sont pleinement vaccinés. Ma question est, plusieurs Québé euh, Canadiens ne désirent pas avoir une, un rappel de, de vaccin. Allez-vous leur enlever leurs privilèges reliés au passeport vaccinal? Et aurez-vous l'obligeance de répondre à ma question en tant que premier ministre ou allez-vous encore diaboliser mon média? J'ai partagé ma perspective sur ton organisation euh, hier soir. J'ai plus rien à dire. Ça demande bien qui vous êtes. Merci. I have no proof that that is when Justin Trudeau decided to put a target on you. It's merely speculation on my part. But I think that it's not a coincidence that you were attacked by Trudeau's cops, that your cameraman Guillaume was pepper sprayed by Trudeau's cops, that David Menzies was physically roughed up mm -hmm. by Trudeau's bodyguards. Is it really a coincidence that the three people attacked by Trudeau's cops are three Rebel News journalists? I, I just uh, have a, a trouble believing that's a mere coincidence, but maybe we'll find out something in the trial. Maybe we'll find out the facts in the trial. Yeah, but we know that um, Mr. Justin Trudeau doesn't like uh, any Rebel News uh, um, team, like nobody in, in our team and nobody in our media. He doesn't want to call us media, but we are, and he needs to accept it because the freedom of press is still a right in Canada, and uh, he cannot remove that. Same if he have the Emergencies Act. Mm -hmm. So let's see what will happen. Well, I want to tell you, Alexa, that your coverage, along with our other reporters, Lincoln Jay being one of them, David Menzies, Mauricio, we have so many of our young people, I'm not even going to try and name them all, who have been in Ottawa, but also in other parts of the country. I just checked, and this morning I want to let you know that we hit one million people who have signed up for Rebel News emails, one million and wow. by my estimate, in the last 30 days, we have had 400 million views and impressions on our stories, videos, tweets, social media. So 1 million people signed up, 400 million views. By some measures, that makes us the largest media in the country. And I think a lot of the credit goes to you and, of course, our other reporters on the ground. So thank you for that. I think that what you're doing is very important for our country. And it's actually very important to show the world. So you have my personal gratitude. Once again, I'm sorry that this painful thing happened to you, but I give you my word that Rebel News will leave no stone unturned to find you justice. We will go to court and we will go to the Special Investigations Unit. And if there's other ideas we come up with for what we can do, 
we'll do those. We'll do those as well. But it might be that that if it happened to me, we will not have shown the word all here. The state are threatening uh, the independent media who try to tell the other side of the story. So now that opened the eyes of the rest of the world of how Canada is now. Well, and I know you've been on a lot of shows. You were on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News the other day, I know, because I was on the show right after you. You've done a lot of shows. Just very briefly before we say goodbye, tell me some of the international news that you have appeared on. Um, and I'm so proud that you and other young rebels have been on the news around the world. Can you list, uh, you were on Laura Ingram's show, where you, what other shows have you done? I, I did the RT International. I did as well Eric Bowling at uh, Newsmax. I'm going to be on Benny Report. I've been to uh, some radio station, Chris Tegel, um, as well as, um, oh my God, I have so much. I have the um, German, uh, Dutch Dutch media. Oh, Deutsche Welle, uh, DW, yeah, yeah. is that right? That's a very large German network. That's, I think that, that may be the largest in all of Germany. Isn't that Yes, right? and I have so many that's coming. Um, I will be on the, a lot of live streaming and other uh, news outlet. I have Ivory Acre as well that uh, contact me. So uh, a lot is coming, is coming. Well, I think that's great. I think that's wonderful. And the whole world wants to know what's going on in Canada. And they know that they won't get the full story if they talk to the CBC or others, other government journalists. They know that Rebel News tells the other side of the story. We show everything. We live stream. We just point the camera and the camera tells the story. So the fact that we are the trusted go-to source, and by the way, two of the networks you mentioned, Deutsche Welle and RT International, are government networks. Deutsche Welle is owned, owned, if I'm not mistaken, in part by the German government. So the fact that these major companies with huge resources, like they, they have huge budgets, the fact that we, they would choose to talk to you rather than, say, the CBC, tells me that it's not about money or anything like that. Deutsche Welle is very prestigious. It's that they want to hear what's actually happening. And the fact that they're choosing you and Rebel News, I think, is wonderful. Well, Alexa, thank you for giving our people an update. I know everyone is quite concerned about you and people are on your side. And unfortunately, justice moves slowly, but we will see it through to the end. We will. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank uh, you, my friend. There you have it, Alexa Lavoie, our chief reporter in Quebec, who's been doing an amazing job almost one month straight. She's been covering the story from Ottawa. Stay with us. More ahead. Hey, welcome back. Uh, your viewer feedback, someone with the name Hugh Jonas. I'm always on the lookout for fake names that start with Hugh. Um, so the reason they implemented the Emergency Act was because it was affecting people's businesses. I'm pretty sure shutting down 39 trucking companies will have the same effect. I guess we can all expect the same treatment if we dare disagree with the government. Well, that's not why they shut down. That's not why they brought in the Emergencies Act. The, the lockdowns of the last two years did, what, a trillion dollars worth of damage, probably. Um, they brought in the Emergency Act to save Trudeau's um, politically and uh, to make an enemies list of uh, people who oppose Trudeau. Pretty clear to me. Snow White says, who's going to deliver our food to the grocery stores? The food prices have gone up so much. Now Ford may go up higher. Is Ford going to deliver the food himself and help pay for increased costs? I don't even know who runs Doug Ford. I don't even know who the boss is. It's certainly not he himself. I, uh, I think he really is, in some ways, the worst premier in Canada. Um, Jason Kenney has been the most shockingly evil compared to who he claimed to be. The serial imprisonment of Christian pastors is something I will never understand for the rest of my life. But at least you know that Jason Kenney is the decision maker. Um, I don't think that Doug Ford has had an honest, authentic comment that was his own in two years. And uh, I look forward to 
him being replaced. I really don't even care who. No one could be worse. Yenan Federation says, I feel scared signing petitions or calling politicians with my concerns. Even subscribing to Rebel News makes me afraid of reprisal by the government. I never even went to a protest. Well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And of course, we sympathize and we, we worry about what will the government do next. They hate the fact that we have been one of the most effective opposition voices. But I don't think we are at that front line yet. In fact, I think the fact that Trudeau overplayed his hand may help um, restrict his ability to be a bully in the future. We'll see. That said, he is introducing censorship uh, laws in Parliament, Bill C-11. That's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. And keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with our video of the day to Mary Ugolini on an unvaccinated son prevented from giving care to his mother in a long-term facility. That's ahead. Mary Ugolini here with Rebel News featuring the deplorable situation faced by both residents and loved ones in the Ontario long-term care sector. See, anyone who so much as makes an informed personal medical choice that differs from the regime's mandate is punished for not towing that line. And that punishment looks like forced isolation and separation from loved ones. Back in December of 2021, the Government of Ontario issued Directive 3. It outlines the various policies around long-term care and retirement homes, including universal masking, testing, visitors, and vaccine passports. It essentially forced compliance with the Ministry of Long-Term Care's COVID-19 guidance document. Under Section 14, it's titled Access to Homes, and visitors must meet the vaccine requirement as per the Minister's Directive, and, well, exemptions are pretty much non-existent. An unvaccinated general visitor or caregiver is only permitted to enter the home for palliative or end-of-life care. And so, the gentleman that I am featuring in this story has been unable to provide his mother with the care that he previously provided her almost daily. Today, Jordy is both the power of attorney, that's the POA, and an essential caregiver to his mother, he has now deep concerns around how his duty to provide care is being obstructed by the home and the government. He and his sister chose McCormick Care Group in London, Ontario, for the specific dementia care that their mother so desperately needs. Diagnosed with early-onset dementia, his mother is only 66 years old. But without further ado, let's hear it from Jordy, the kind of care he would provide, and how this policy has affected his ability to do that and further care for his mother and only really serves to isolate her. Have a listen. The care was <laughs> pretty well anything a loving son can offer their ailing uh, mother there. It would have been anything from uh, physio. I would help her stretch. She's in a wheelchair now. So I would stretch her legs every evening um, to hygiene, washing, uh, washing her face, brushing her teeth, uh, toileting, keeping a level of cleanliness and hygiene. Um, to stimulating her cognitively, uh, playing, you know, even if it's just an annoyance, it was some sort of stimulation for her as she doesn't uh, seem to recognize too many faces uh, at this point in her life. And uh, I'm one of them that she is still able to. Mm -hmm. And I guess you were, you were heading up to see her, you know, how often and um, any specifics around what your visits would look like, um, you know, even as they came to an end in the evenings? Yep. Uh, for the better part of uh, one and a half years, I'd say, uh, I would go up there after work, uh, come home, shower, go up there after work, anywhere between uh, 6 and 7 p.m. I'd arrive there and after getting tested, yada. And uh, then I'd stay up there for a solid hour and a half to three hours every night. And it was helping her with anything and everything. Uh, early stages when she was in the home, she was able to walk. So we'd just go walk around the unit and do something, get her, get her active somehow. And, uh, but generally, I was up there every evening, uh, if not seven nights a week, six nights a week, uh, from 6 to 8 p.m. or whenever she... Uh, would fall asleep there. Mm -hmm. And since the the day after Christmas, you have been prevented from that 
providing your mother with that kind of care and those interactions. Um, what has that looked like for you and for your concerns around your mother's care? Oh, well, it was, <laughs> it's uh, for sure heartbreaking. You feel helpless. Uh, I feel guilty. Uh, there's a level of anxiety that I am not able to do anything. I'm thankful uh, for a platform such as yourself that uh, I am able to tell my side of the story and and be able to broadcast this as I have tried to reach out to many, many, including uh, you could name it in my city, uh, any MP, any uh, MLA, any ministry uh, with my concerns. Uh, she's not getting adequate care and the level of decline, especially when we're talking about the isolation that uh, they've been put through over the last year. And um, speaking of isolation, my mother just got out of the isolation, um, I think uh, just over a week ago now, a week and a half ago now, and she was there for 21 days. Wow. wow. Now, about this, this isolation and uh, you not being able to provide care to her, um, how how does the home facilitate any sort of visitation, whether it be you know technologically or otherwise? Uh, well, as you know, I'm not the greatest with uh, technology. Um, I'm better on pen and paper, but they really have only offered me uh, an outdoor visit, which, as you know, in a Canadian winter is uh, with an already frail individual, um, not the greatest. They've offered me if 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 I call a day in advance, they will put a heater out and a, an office partition in order to try and ensure some warmth, I guess, and some uh, comfort there. Although they still are requiring me to go in and take a test, wait inside until I receive a negative result, and then they will bring my mother down so we can go outside into the snow. That just Not, seems so yeah. hypocritical. I, I could not agree more what so and your mom can't from what i gathered but when we were chatting off camera your mom can't actually you know make phone calls do the skype do the zoom do the virtual visits you know what would what would that look like for her cognitively even trying to attempt something like that uh we have uh with with uh my sister who's still able to go up uh who's an rn and uh like i said my mother's um super dedicated awesome uh friend has been able to go up and without their extensive help uh a virtual such as this uh like facetime or something uh without their extensive help it's not she wouldn't even be looking at the screen um the last couple weeks staff members have been trying to call me on my uh home landline here and it's it's not bad but as soon as they go out of the room, it's easy to tell. I've been on the phone with my mother in the last couple of weeks and within 10 minutes of a staff member leaving the room, it's, it, it's chaos. All I can uh, describe is chaos that uh, I'm hearing and agitation, um, anxiety, uh, despair, anything and everything. She's, she is trash. And I literally walked into this on prior isolation periods, I believe, uh, just over a year ago when I was allowed in, that I walked in and my mother, she's in a wheelchair. She has ripped apart her bed. She doesn't know. Furniture is tipped over. It's amazing to see this, but uh, the person in a wheelchair, what they can do. But I mean, <laughs> you can only put up with isolation so long. Um, so there's really, for me, my hands are tied. I have no, no, and I, the level of guilt and anxiety I'm personally feeling is, uh, through the roof. Residents are saying that they've been, you know, confined for upwards of a month. In these situations, when there's even sometimes just one staff case, the residents are trapped in their rooms. They can't even walk down the halls. No baths, no showers. Can you imagine what life is like? They are telling their families, they are telling us that they would rather die than live in this solitary confinement. They've already been traumatized before, and they're being continuously re-victimized by terrible policy and the lack of proactive action to, oh, I don't know, make their lives somewhat enjoyable in their final days. I imagine her being on an island. And as the days go by, uh, that island gets smaller and smaller. It's like a little raft in the ocean. And she's by herself. It's storming. 
has no uh, recognizable faces or comfort around her. Uh, feeling of helplessness and despair, really. And it's, uh, I don't even really like thinking about it. Sometimes I and lose sleep at night about it. Um, mm. It's it's terrifying, really. And then now I am helpless. It was it was before it gave her something to look forward to. If if she even realized that is every night I would be up there and she'd be like, oh, there's Jordy, there's Jordy, and the the smile was from ear to ear. As soon as she she saw me, it didn't even matter um, what was going on. So it's uh, it's it's scary. I can only imagine what's going through her head. Uh, this but these past couple months this past year and a half really but yeah it's certainly been a long time uh now for this this situation that was supposed to be a temporary solution well something mm -hmm. more long-term and sustainable was figured out what has the communication looked like between yourself and the home their administrator or otherwise who's caring for your mom uh, honestly, they've been very uh, communicative with me. Uh, I wouldn't say they've been uh, the most helpful in the sense that all they are doing is listening to top-down orders. And there has been real no um, critical thinking or ways that we can uh, all help each other to come to a better solution and really uh, alleviate the problem, which would be... <laughs> the staff shortages and the level of care they're able to provide. Um, it's they're they're basically uh, not the home, but the ministry and the government is basically shooting the lights and then cursing the dark with regards to the staffing shortages and the level of cares they're able to provide. Um, as far as the home, uh, they've been I can't say they've been accommodating, but they Maybe they've attempted, uh, but again, they're they're listening to top-down orders and really making no assessment of individual situations themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which obviously me leads to the persistent use of unethical and inhumane policies that you know are are a result of these this sort of one-size-fits-all approach that we've seen throughout the COVID response. Um, just mm -hmm. in closing, Jordy, what what would you like to see change here? What, what would you like to see happen? Uh, for sure, I think uh, I think essential caregivers are one of the best low-cost, we're free uh, alternatives to uh, bolstering up our staffing shortages. And if <laughs> it was working fine before when we were allowed to test with the rapid test, PCR test, test me with whatever you choose, um, but allow me to help my ailing mother. Uh, that's all I can really say about this. Jordy is right. Essential caregivers are a blessing to an already overburdened, understaffed healthcare sector. He is a clear asset, not only to his mother, but to the other staff who can prioritize care for others who may not have hands-on family members or loved ones to tend to their physical, mental, and or emotional health. And the thing that I found most odd about one of the COVID-19 guidance documents is that the footnote way down at the very bottom, it stipulates that the document does not constitute legal advice. The licensee should seek independent legal advice for guidance on what appropriate measures might be adopted to ensure a safe and secure environment for residents. So I reached out to the home, asking if they had sought that independent legal advice for guidance on the appropriateness of their measures. I also asked if Directive 3 and the guidance document aligned with the legal duty that a power of attorney has to their grantor, in this case, that's Jordy to his mother, if they cannot gain access to their grantor or their residence. And of course, what reasonable alternatives are being given to POAs who don't want to divulge their medical information or are religiously or medically exempt from vaccination? Well, the home, they didn't respond, but I also sent the two latter questions to Vanessa DeMatteis. She is the Senior Communications Director for the Ministry of Long-Term Care. Someone named Tanya asked for an extension to my initial 24-hour deadline, and then a few days later, someone named Anne responded to my request. 
they regurgitate all of the points in all of the documents that I had already sifted through. And really, the only time that they so much as veered from that safety net is when they state that the POA should seek independent legal advice, even though their own directive prevents Geordie from performing his duties. As of March 1st, the province of Ontario is officially doing away with vaccine passports, but the mandate will still be in place for visitors in long-term care homes. That means that there is no end in sight for Geordie to visit comfortably indoors with his ailing mother. For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini.